did you ever look for a loophole, you know, a way to evade an unpleasant responsibility or obligation? I think, I think we all have. You know, taxes usually come to mind when we think of loopholes. And it's not just big corporations that look for them. Few of us are patriotic enough to want to pay more than we have to. For some, jury duty is another. Someone very close to me was desperately looking for a loophole when she pointed out that her brother-in-law was a police officer. I'll not tell you who that is, but I will tell you she got another summons this week, and she's not very happy. I hear her. You know, I think most of us have looked for loopholes when breaking a date or getting out of a commitment. There are times when we all look for the easy way out, and it's not wrong if it's legitimate. In fact, it can even be wise. The problem comes when we think we've found one where none exists or where there should not be one. And in today's text, we find a lawyer, no surprise there, looking for a loophole in his spiritual obligations. And it led to an interesting exchange with our Lord. We're in Luke chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, it wasn't unusual for Jesus to be quizzed by lawyers, the experts in religious law. On this occasion, Luke says he was being put to the test, indicating this lawyer's motives were at best questionable. He was apparently seeking more to trip Jesus up than to learn from him. The question he asks, however, is very appropriate. In fact, it's a question that everyone must ask. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? When asked from the heart, it's a crucial question. And we must all find the answer. I love the way Jesus answered him. What is written in the law? You know, rather than answer the question, Jesus pointed him to the Scriptures and encouraged him to find the answer there. I think we should do the same. If anyone asks us what they must do to inherit eternal life, we should point them to the Scriptures. Now, they may need our help searching out the answers in God's Word, but if they see it there, it will have much more impact than if we simply try to tell them what to do. You know, it shouldn't be our voice 
they hear answering the question. It should be the voice of God coming from his word. Jesus then said something that I think we have to be very careful about saying, especially today in our, you know, you believe what you want and I'll believe what I want pluralistic world. He said, how does it read to you? Now, I don't think he was suggesting that there are many different ways to read God's word and all of them are equally valid. He wasn't just fishing for this man's thoughts about a passage of scripture, curious to know what he thought it meant. The man was a trained scholar in the Old Testament. He knew what it said and what it meant. He knew the language and the grammar and how to accurately interpret what had been written. Now, he may have wanted to avoid the implications and personal application of what it said, but he knew what it said. And Jesus was forcing him to acknowledge that the answer to the question he was asking was to be found in God's word. And he did know what the scriptures taught. He answered correctly. By quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself would give the same answer when later asked by another lawyer, what was the greatest commandment? The answer was absolutely correct, and Jesus said so. But then he added, do this and you will live. You see, it's not enough to know the Word of God. We must do it. There is a problem, however, in what Jesus told him to do. It's impossible to practice perfect love for God and neighbor as required by the law. Now, if the lawyer had been honestly seeking to know how to attain eternal life, his next question would have been, but what if I fail? What then? Had he done so, he would have no doubt been reminded how God had promised to forgive those who would confess their sins and, and make the sacrifices required in the old covenant. And he probably would have been told, of the sacrifice about to be made that would end the sacrificial system and usher in a covenant of grace. But he tried to justify himself. He knew he had failed to show love to everyone, so he sought a loophole seeking a limited definition of neighbor. Now, the Jews had already excluded everyone who wasn't a Jew from being a neighbor. But he was looking for even more. He was hoping for a definition that would justify all his failures to show love. He was looking for loopholes in his religious responsibilities. All too often, I'm afraid, we do the same. We don't want to take something we find in God's word personally. And so we come up with a reason why it doesn't apply to us. We come up with reasons why we shouldn't be expected to teach or serve 
or give. Or be faithful in our marital commitments. Or even be honest in our dealings with fellow men. It's amazing how we try to justify ourselves with loopholes. And this man tried with, who's my neighbor? Jesus answered his question with a parable that asked another question, whose neighbor are you? Let's read on. Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three? do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. We've come to what is undoubtedly the best known of all the parables, the Good Samaritan. In fact, some literary critics have said this is actually the greatest story ever told. And we have Luke to thank for it because he's the only one to record it. That's not to suggest, however, he's the only one to write about it. It's been written about and analyzed extensively for 2,000 years. In fact, the early church fathers allegorized it to such an extent that they may have missed the point Jesus was making. Origen gives us this interpretation that he said came to him from one of the elders. The man who is going down is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise and Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers. The priest is the law, the Levite is the prophets, and the Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The beast is the Lord's body. The pandocium, or pandocium, that is the stable, the inn, which accepts all, pan, who wish to enter in, is the church. And further, the two denarii mean the father and the son. The manager of the stable is the head of the church, to whom its care has been entrusted. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Savior's second coming. I don't think comments are necessary. It's also been politicized. A former dean of Yale Divinity School has suggested that the parable represents three philosophies of life. The thief's philosophy is what you have is mine. And this is socialism or communism. 
The priest and Levite's philosophy is, what I have is mine, and this is godless capitalism. And the good Samaritan's philosophy is, what I have belongs to you. And this is a Christian philosophy of life. Now, there are some truths in all of these pictures. But I think our best bet is to leave it a simple parable with one primary point, that of identifying a neighbor. Jesus began the parable by saying a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which would have been literally true. Jerusalem was located 2,300 feet above sea level, and Jericho was in the Dead Sea Basin at 1,300 feet below sea level. The elevation drops 3,600 feet in less than 20 miles, and the road follows a narrow, twisting, rocky path that is dangerous in more than one way. In the 5th century, Jerome referred to this road as the Bloody Way because of the highwaymen who preyed on travelers. And in the 19th century, it was still necessary to pay safety money to local sheiks when traveling on it. The lawyer could easily visualize what Jesus was talking about. A man traveling the Jericho Road fell among robbers, was stripped, beaten, and left for dead. The first person to come along was a priest, a man dedicated to helping people bridge the gulf between God and man. One would expect a priest to help. But no, he passed by on the other side. Whether he was afraid of spiritual contamination or physical danger, we can only guess. It's been suggested facetiously, I hope, that he passed by because he figured the man had already been robbed. <laughs> the next to come by was a Levite, a religious man who assisted the priests and cared for the temple property. He, too, passed by on the other side. Now, at this point, the lawyer may have expected an anti-clerical twist to the story with Jesus having a compassionate Jewish layman come by. But no, Jesus says the next to come by was a Samaritan. Now, assuming the victim to be a Jew, no one would expect a Samaritan to help. Jews and Samaritans hated each other and certainly did not consider one another neighbors. But this Samaritan felt compassion for the victim and acted upon that compassion. He did not let reason, caution, or prejudice keep him from doing what he knew he should do. He treated and bandaged his wounds, put him on his donkey, I assume, took him to an inn, a Jewish inn, no doubt. And once there, he personally cared for the injured Jew. And before he left, he gave the innkeeper enough money to care for the man for nearly a month, promising to pay whatever else might be needed when he returned. He did far more that can be expected or was even necessary. 
And rather than looking for a loophole by asking if the victim was really his neighbor, he became a neighbor to a man in need. Jesus wasn't content, however, to leave this in the realm of a story. He pointedly asked the lawyer, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The lawyer had no choice. He had to admit it was the one who showed mercy. And Jesus then said to him, go and do the same. That's the second time that Jesus told him to do what he knew he should do. God expects us to be a neighbor to anyone who needs us. When confronted with a legitimate need, we must act. To fail to do so is to fail in our responsibility before God. Now, I'm not denying that there may be a need for discernment for helping some. But we can never say that someone doesn't deserve it or won't appreciate it or that we're too busy to do anything. There can be no loophole in love or obedience. So let's not look for them. Let's stand.